Paul goes to the city of Corinth. We remembered that Corinth was a trade center. It was an athletic center and it was also sin city. There was a temple of Aphrodite that had a thousand prostitute priestesses who would go into the city every night and with the revenues they would support the temple. And yet a church was established here in Corinth. And the church was a thriving church, but it had problems. In fact, if you read First and Second Corinthians, the letters that were written to the churches, you discover that Paul attacks problem after problem after problem after problem in the church. Now that should be revealing to us. Every now and then, someone will say, we need to get back to the early church. We need to get back to first century Christianity. Well, I don't know about that. Because there's some of it that is good and I would embrace, and some of it I don't want to get back to. Because the church at Corinth had lots of problems, and if you think the modern church is much different than the ancient church, read 1 Corinthians. There was, first of all, the problem of divisions. One group was against the other group in the church. There were factions and differences of personality. There was problems with immorality, sexual permissiveness. There were problems with doctrine and the use of spiritual gifts. Some people were really into it and other people weren't into it and there were divisions over that. There was the problem of marriage and divorce where divorces were occurring for any reason. Women were saying, I'm going to leave my husband because he's not a believer and men were doing the same. And so there really wasn't that much difference. There were certain things we want to get back to. There are certain properties of the early church we want to emulate, but there are others we don't want to emulate. And the church of Corinth here is a good case in point. As we go through the rest of this chapter, we're going to look at four experiences that Paul had in this city. The first being he exercised his apostleship. And Paul was an apostle, which is a word that means one who is sent out to do a specific purpose or a specific task. Every single person Jesus called, he sent them out. He just didn't call them to himself to be saved, but he called them and commissioned them to go out. And so we see in verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. We've already read down to a verse, verse 5 and 6. Um, but look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Back in verse 4, we read, He reasoned and also he persuaded. And he testified that Jesus is the Christ. Now, there are always different responses to the gospel message. Some people are into it and some people are not into it. When you share the scripture or the word of God, there's always people who are kind of interested. They're looking at you interested. They're not distracted. They're listening to everything you have to say. Then there are other people who are going to looking around, looking at their watch. going, <laughs> They want to get it over with. You've had that experience when you've shared the gospel with people at work or family members. Automatically, after just a few sentences, they'll either look at you and, and get really interested or they'll fold their arms, look at you like, would you please stop? And there's always those responses. Jesus told a parable of a farmer who went out and sowed seed in the field. And it had four different kinds of responses. And Jesus likened soils where seed is planted to the four different kinds of hearts that people have. Some receive it with joy. Some receive it for a while, but then get choked up by the cares of this world, the weeds that grow and choke up the plant. 
But some of the seed falls upon good soil, and it produces a crop, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. So Paul had a good response, first of all, in verse 4, persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And down in verse 8, it says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So there was a favorable response. And we ought to take note that, the first of all, the Jewish people grabbed a hold of the message, which is significant. If you know how hard it is to evangelize Jewish people today, you can appreciate this verse. And so Paul exercised his apostleship and there was a favorable response. But there's another experience Paul had in this city. Anytime you exercise your apostleship, you're going to experience hardship. And Paul did. In fact, we read in verse 6, notice, they opposed him and they blasphemed. Look over in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Jesus, in the parable that we just mentioned, described a condition of the heart in which, because of hardness, Satan comes along and snatches the gospel message immediately. Jesus said, somebody sowed seed. The farmer sowed seed and it landed by the wayside or on the path. And the birds of the air came and snatched up the seed so that it didn't even have time to penetrate the soil. It couldn't even bear a crop. There are people like that. You've met them. Perhaps you are one of them tonight. And you just happened to come because you were invited. A friend invited and you're thinking, oh, okay, I'll go. That type of a person, when the Word of God goes out, immediately defenses go up. Not just questions. Not just, hmm, let me really delve into this and examine its truth, but just a wall of defense. I don't want to hear it. I don't like that. I don't want to listen to any more. And Satan comes immediately and snatches up the seat. And there's opposition. And you can expect that whenever God blesses apostleship, there comes hardship. It was Paul the Apostle who, in one of his letters, wrote and asked for prayer. He said, a great and effective door has been opened, and there are many adversaries. There's a great fruitful door, but at the same time, there are many adversaries. Now, recently, we have put on the radio here in Albuquerque, what we call God Spots. We put them on secular radio. We put them on Cool 102. We put them on KOB, and we're just trying to douse the community on secular radio with little God spots that have a gospel message in it, kind of a 30-second spot with a music bed behind it. And we did it for an important reason. We did it because we want to evangelize. We don't want to have a little subculture of Christians off in the corner. Look, world, uh, we'll do our thing, you do your thing. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. We don't believe in that. We believe that Jesus is the answer, and so we're getting the word out. Now, we've gone on secular radio, and uh, we've had an interesting response. Some good and some bad. Some favorable and some antagonistic. In fact, Cool 102, which is a station here in town that draws a lot of people, are getting a lot of complaints. But because this is America, and we have freedom of speech, 
and we pay for the radio spots like anybody else who would have radio time. We stay on the air. See, we figure that if people who claim to be ministers who are not, who claim to be apostles and who are not, can get in the Albuquerque Journal and put down Christianity week after week, hey, figure, you know, tit for tat. We'll invade the enemy's territory and we'll just go on his turf instead of a religious article in a newspaper. We'll go on secular radio and give him the gospel. And uh, also we do it, we do it for evangelism. Not Unbelievers rarely listen to Christian radio. I don't even listen to much Christian radio. And especially unbelievers aren't going to listen to Christian stuff, usually. Sometimes they will flip past the dial, maybe something will grab them, but usually they don't. It's for believers. So we wanted to do something on secular radio. But we've gotten hassled because of it. You have no right to say those kinds of things preaching the gospel on our turf. And so we kind of retorted with another God spot, had a music bed and came in and said, it's interesting, we've got a lot of flack mail from different people saying we ought not to do this. Isn't it interesting? We could talk about parties, we could talk about this rock concert where people are going to get crushed or beat up or maybe even killed afterwards. And you can discuss all sorts of things on the radio, but you mention Jesus, salvation, and people squawk. What a change of values this country has gone through. But any time you exercise your God-given apostleship, you can also exercise or experience the hardship like Paul the Apostle did here. Why? Well, because you invade Satan's territory. And whenever you do, he doesn't applaud you. He doesn't invite you to come into his territory and say, hey, this is a really good idea you're doing. Go for it. When you invade his territory, he gets ticked. And when he gets ticked, you can expect hardship like Paul the Apostle did here. One person, in fact, Charles Spurgeon said, Satan never kicks a dead horse. And when you're living and active for the gospel, on the job, at the university, in your high school, among your family or friends, you can expect hardship. In fact, it should be to you an indication that you're on the right track by your friends and by your enemies. Jesus said, woe to you if the whole world speaks well of you. When you're getting pat on the backs from everybody who's opposed to the gospel, something's wrong. When you can fit in in both camps very comfortably, perhaps you've lost your salt. Woe if the world speaks well of you. It was interesting, a couple of, oh, four or five years ago, I heard somebody came up to me who had been involved with some of the witchcraft in this city, and they said, you know, some of the witches in the covens around town are praying against you, your marriage and your ministry, that you'll get killed. I said, so what? I'm praying that I won't, and I'm praying for their salvation. And that doesn't bother me. In fact, it kind of, I'm elated, I'm honored. <laughs> that Satan would be so angry as to take such notice and cause such fury. I told you the story before how a couple years ago when we had a seminar on Satanism here at the church, how the Satanists came and threatened to burn the church down. Of course, they had a hard time looking when they saw that it was metal. <laughs> that it wouldn't be as easy of a task. Though you can burn it, it will burn. 
But they called and they threatened to kill me and they threatened my wife and uh, my son and all sorts of stuff. And the guy who threatened me called one day while I happened to be here. And so I picked up the phone and I said, I want to meet you face to face. So I met him over here at uh, Village Inn. And he pretended to be real angry and seedy and we led him to Christ that day. But I want you to notice in this chapter the source of the persecution, where it came from. It didn't come from Satan worshippers. It came from religious people. It was the Jewish people we read about in this chapter that incited fury and anger against Paul and his gang. It came from the religious sector. Now that was the same case in Jesus' ministry. It was the Pharisees who came against Jesus. They said, Jesus, how come your disciples will eat their food without going through the mosaic ceremonies that we go through. In fact, they plotted his demise and they plotted his crucifixion. It was the same in the ministry of the apostles. The apostles in the book of Acts, their enemies were the Sadducees, those who disbelieved in the resurrection and miracles. And it wasn't the common people as much as it was the religious people trying to curtail the ministry of the apostles. Jesus even predicted it. He said in Matthew, Behold, I send you a sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in the synagogues. And history tells us that in ancient Jewish synagogues, there was a room, a tribunal room, where cases were heard. If you were convicted of insurrection, spiritual religious insurrection, and it often happened to the Christians of that time. They were brought to this room. They were tied up. One person read the charges. One person flogged with the scourging belt. The other person counted off the floggings. In fact, in some of these cases, the other part of the synagogue was filled with worshipers and they sang songs as the floggings were going on. Even as Jesus predicted, you would be scourged in the synagogue. It's interesting, I've told you about Russia and the opportunities that are occurring in the Soviet Union. How that because of some of the freedoms, so many people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In fact, there's much more freedom in the Soviet Union to share about Jesus in public schools than anywhere in the United States. Where at one time there was here. We've closed it down and now it's opening in the Soviet Union. But the major persecution does not come from the communists. It comes from the Russian Orthodox Church who is trying to curtail these salvations and push down Bible studies and house groups. The last great persecution that will take place on the earth, according to Revelation, is called Mystery Babylon, a religious system that comes together to persecute the true church. So Paul exercised his apostleship. Because of that, he experienced hardship. And because he experienced hardship, as he was called by God, he also enjoyed fellowship with God. Look in verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. When you exercise your calling, whatever God has called you to do on a daily basis, your God-given apostleship, 
And if because you are doing that, you experience hardship, then you can expect God's fellowship in the midst of it. Even as God came to Paul and assured him of his presence, you can be rest assured of the same kind of promises. Now, it's interesting as you read through this chapter and get to this point, verses 9 and 10, it would seem odd that God would need to encourage Paul with this. Because it seems like he's on a roll spiritually. I mean, the ruler of the synagogue comes to know Christ. Many of the Corinthians believe and are baptized. You think, hey, this is great. And yet, in verse 9, the Lord comes and says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. It seems, we're not sure, but it seems like something happened between verse 8 and 9. Something inside Paul. Perhaps it got more dangerous in Corinth to preach the gospel. Perhaps he was getting threatened by the Jewish people. We don't know. And it could be that he was getting discouraged inwardly. And maybe he was thinking thoughts like, you know, it's getting tough around here. I mean, it's been great so far, but I better leave the city before the church, the rest of the Christians, get hurt because of me. I remember what happened to me back in Lystra where they had a rock concert on my head throwing stones at me outside the city. I think it's time for me to leave. And it could be that he was ready to just cash it in and to leave. And then the Lord came to him in verse 9 and encouraged him. Now, he was obviously afraid. You don't walk up to someone and say, Fear not. Don't be afraid. Unless they are afraid already. In fact, in the Greek language, this is a present imperative with a negative command that means to stop an action already going on. And so the Lord said to Paul, Paul, stop being afraid. He was already scared. I want you to notice something about Paul's suffering and Paul's trial, that he was suffering for the right reasons. He was in danger and he was afraid, either for himself or for the church, for the right reasons. He was being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's important because, you know, an awful lot of Christians get persecuted for weirdness sake because they do dumb things or because they're lazy on the job. And they say, well, you know, I really can't do that, boss. I've got a witness and read my Bible today. God's before you are really well, then you're fired. I've had a lot of bosses say I never want to hire Christians again because they're lazy. And they use spiritual excuses to not do their work. And I've worked with some like that. And they get persecuted and they walk away going, I've been persecuted for the gospel. No, you've been persecuted because you're lazy. And then I know Christians who are obnoxious in their presentation of the gospel. They go out of their way to get people angry at them. In fact, they like it the more angry people get at them. And they're being persecuted for unrighteousness sake, not for righteousness sake. Make sure that you're being persecuted if you are for the right reason. And the Bible says in this world you're going to have tribulation. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now Peter said in his epistle, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for good and do good and you endure it, then this is commendable toward God. Now, Paul received fellowship or the assurance from the Lord in these verses because he was being persecuted for the right reasons. You can't have the same assurance Paul had unless if in your trial it's in the vein of your service 
unto the Lord. And so God comes to Paul in verses 9 and 10 in his danger, in his fearfulness. And notice, first of all, he gives him the assurance of his approval. Look at the phrase in verse 9. He says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Paul, don't be afraid. Don't clam up. Go for it. There's something important about God's approval of Paul. God knew what was happening to him. God knew that he would go into this situation, that he would be persecuted, that people would respond favorably and against him. He knew that he would experience fear because of it. He knew that he would be discouraged because of it. And God approves of what he's doing. Paul is not out of the will of God. He's in the will of God. And it shows us that nothing ever touches your life. Nothing ever happens to you, Christian, unless it's first been surveyed by God and approved by Him, good or bad, and then passed on to you. Even if something happens and you think, oh, this is horrible. Why did you let this happen? It didn't touch your life until God first perused it, examined it, saw the end result, and then gave it to you. There's no accidents in the kingdom of God. It's not just happenstance. Your life, though it might seem like it's just fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstance, it's not. It's well planned by God. And God looks it over and then He gives it to you. And if you would grasp that, it would revolutionize your periods of pain. Instead of saying, how dare you? He'd say, God, listen, I gave you my life. I don't like what's going on, but what is it you want to show me because of this? I submit myself to you in this. I don't want it, but do you have a lesson for me to learn? Because this wouldn't have occurred unless somehow you had a lesson for me. And this has been approved by you. That's not fatalism. That's spiritual realism, if you read the New Testament correctly. You know, we often think in terms of the average American, we think... Well, logically, if I do good, then good things should happen. And if I do bad, then bad things should happen. As logical as that might seem, it doesn't always happen, does it? We've all seen exceptions. There were times when Paul went out to share the gospel and he got beat up for it. He wasn't protected. God was with him, but he wasn't protected. In this case, he wasn't disobedient. It wasn't because he lacked faith. It wasn't because he was out of the will of God. He was in the will of God. But obedience to the will of God does not mean a smooth road without any rocks or any pitfalls. You remember Israel in the Old Testament. God led them to the Red Sea. You remember the story? God led them on a a route. And when they got to the Red Sea, they thought, you know, we have a problem here. There's a body of water. That's tough to get across. And we can't go to the left because there's a big cliff of mountains here in Egypt. And we can't go to the right because there's another cliff. They were wedged into a valley. On the right and the left, it was desert and mountains. Before them was the Red Sea. So they turned around to go back. And lo and behold, the Egyptians were coming. And they squawked. They said, we're in a trap. God brought us out here to let us eat our lunch. And so they started crying out. And Moses started crying out and God basically said, be quiet. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And God opened up a way where there was no way, but God deliberately led them into a trap so that he might show them the way. 
Jesus told His twelve disciples. He, in fact, it says in the Greek, He made them get into a boat and sent them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, knowing that a storm was coming. And when they were out there on the storm saying, we're going to drown, we're going to die, Jesus starts cruising up on the water without a jet ski, without a boat. And Jesus said to those who were afraid, don't be afraid, it's I. But it was deliberate that He sent them out into it. And so there was the assurance of His approval. Also, there was the assurance of His presence. Notice also in verse 9, He says, For I am with you. How many times in a trial do you feel alone? Do you feel deserted? I think David, when he wrote the Psalms, could have related with Paul when he said, Why are you so far from helping me? But God says, I am with you. Do you know the value in a time of adversity to have somebody that you know with you? didn't have to say anything. He's just with you. I've stood in hospitals where I haven't offered great words of wisdom. In fact, words are usually useless at times of great tragedy. But just being there, as I've stood at the hospital over a loved one's bed, or I've been at a cemetery, I remember when my brother died. There weren't many words at that point that could comfort me, but the presence of my Christian friends who were there thinking, we love you, we support you, that meant a lot to me. But above and beyond that, when you're assured of God's presence with you, Jesus said, I'm with you to the end of the world. That means something. So there was the assurance of His approval, the assurance of His presence. There's a scripture that has meant a lot to me out of the Old Testament. It's been one of my favorites since I was a young Christian. In fact, if you don't know it, you might want to Keep in mind where it is and look it up later. It's in Isaiah 41, verse 10, where God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then notice also there was the assurance of his protection. He says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. There's a lesson here. And many people don't agree with it, and that's all right. I believe that you are invincible until God's finished with you. When God is finished with your life, When God has used your life for His purpose and His glory and it's all over, then it's time to go home. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. He said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But until that time, He trains us, He loves us, He changes us and He uses us. But when you're done, you'll go home. Until that time, you're invincible. And God has a hedge of protection around you. Now that does not mean that this is a blanket promise for every Christian, every time. Now I know that people say that, well, it really is. I mean, that you should always walk in perfect health and perfect wealth and nothing evil will come your way. Well, Paul the Apostle, he was protected in this case. Nobody attacked him, nobody hurt him. But there were other times where they did attack him and they did hurt him and he was in the will of God. At Lystra, they stoned him in a derby. He says, I suffer the daily trials and the care of all the churches in 2 Corinthians 11. And so there were times where he experienced it. 
In verses 12 through 17, Luke gives us one example of God's protection in Corinth. We read an interesting story, actually. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all of the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. The Jews wanted to manipulate justice. History tells us, in fact, one of the great statesmen of Rome, Seneca, who was the brother to Galileo, said that Galileo was so gracious and so nice to all people, more than most people are to one person. The Jews knew this, and so they sought to manipulate him and get them to beat Paul and push him out of the city. But it backfired on them, and God protected him. In fact, they beat Sosthenes. Now, I'm not rejoicing that somebody else got beat up instead of Paul, but I'm going to show you two things. Number one, God's hedge of protection. And number two, how strange and how wonderful God works in these cases. Because I want you to notice something back in verse 8. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord. That's a no-no for Jewish people. No doubt he was disfellowshipped from the synagogue. They put him out. They kicked him out. And he had to be replaced. And we see that in verse 17, Sosthenes became the new ruler of the synagogue. Now as the new ruler of the synagogue, he gets beat up. But I want to read something to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want, you might want to turn there. The first chapter of 1 Corinthians. The letter that Paul writes to this church. He begins by saying, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. It's great. Obviously, this Sosthenes had come to know Christ too. Talk about backfiring on these antagonists in Corinth. First Crispus falls. He becomes a Christian. They go, we've got to replace this guy. And so they put Sosthenes in. He gets beaten, but later he comes to know Christ. So they lost two of them, had to replace him with the third. I'm sure at that point there weren't a lot of takers. But it totally backfired. Both of the rulers of the synagogue came to know Christ. Beautiful testimony. God worked it out. Now, before we move on, I have to say something about Galileo. I admire his policy. He had a hands-off political policy. It was a religious matter. And instead of regulating it with Roman magistrate law, he thought, you know what, listen, this is a Jewish religious thing. My position is to uphold Roman law. This has nothing to do with Roman law. You do it yourselves. And then the Greeks came along. And they beat the ruler of the synagogue. They thought, this guy's stirring things up. If Galileo were voting for office or running for office, I'd vote for him. I like his stand. And I think that secular law 
when it comes to religious matters like prayer in school and so forth, doesn't have the right to regulate it. In a country especially where there's freedom of speech, hey, somebody wants to pray in school, let him. If he wants to pray publicly, let him. Don't force it on them not to, you know, to, to stop. If they don't want to pray, don't force them to pray. Let them have the freedom of speech, the freedom to do it. It's a good policy. It was a hands-off policy. Notice also in verse 10 that God gives to Paul the assurance of his plan. He gives him the assurance of his approval, the assurance of his presence, I'm with you, the assurance of his protection, and the assurance of his plan. For he says, I have many people in this city. That phrase could also be translated, I have many in this city whom I am preparing to respond. In other words, this implies that many people are going to come to know Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry. He's not saying I have many Christians in this city. There weren't many. But the phrasing is that by my sovereignty, I know those who are mine. There's an election. There's a sovereignty principle here. I'm calling people out. So Paul, hang in there. Many people are going to be responding to the gospel because of this. So, in the next verse, he continued there for a year and a half. And he saw the fruit unfold. Okay, Paul exercised his apostleship. Because he exercised his apostleship, he experienced hardship. Because he experienced hardship, the Lord gave him his fellowship. And finally, Paul worked in discipleship. I want you to notice a few verses before we close. In verse 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Paul had a pattern. He would go into a city and he would do his ministry, but at the same time there was a personality thing. He would be very personal with a few. He came and he joined to people like Timothy or people like Silas, and he discipled them. Here he takes Aquila and Priscilla, he meets them, he lives with them, he works with them, and then he trains them in spiritual things. They get to watch him as he goes into the synagogue. They get to watch him as he spends a year and a half there teaching the Word. And they become trained so that, verse 18, Paul still remained there a good while, and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So now they're traveling with him. And he had his hair cut at Centria, for he had taken a vow, probably a Nazarite vow. You could read about it in the book of Numbers, chapter 6 or 16. And that that is basically a vow of thankfulness, not because he had to do it. He wanted to do it. It was a Jewish custom of, I'm so thankful to God, I'm going to get a buzz cut, kind of a military cut, and then I'll let my hair grow for 30 days, cut it again, and in the temple of Jerusalem it would be offered in a sacrifice as a thanksgiving to the Lord, probably for the work that had gone on here. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, and I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he had gone up and greeted the church, and he went down to Antioch. 
And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. Paul had a ministry of evangelism, but Paul had a personal ministry of discipleship, which was a pattern of Jesus, by the way. He spent time teaching the crowds, but he spent more time training 12, developing 12 fishermen. They were not educated men. In fact, if a public relations expert were to examine the ministry of Jesus, he would have pointed out this as a major flaw that he picked guys that had no education or training in the very job they were called to perform. They had even less spiritual perception than they had education. They were about as sensitive as a porcupine. And they had horrible hospitality. When the crowds came to Jesus, all the disciples could say is, get him out of here, send him away. When the parents brought children to Jesus to be blessed, the disciples rebuked them, get these kids away from Jesus. What a fatal flaw a public relationships expert would have said in looking at Jesus. But Jesus picked people who were made out of raw material. Not because they had great ability, but because they had availability. And he thought, you know, I can take this group of hoodlums and I can make them into something. I can train them. I can disciple them. And after three and a half years, I'll give them the greatest commission anybody ever had, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. And that's the method of Jesus. It was the method of Paul. He told Timothy to select able men. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses commit to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Now, that's what God does to us. He first calls us to be saved. Now, He didn't call us to be saved, to sit in a place where we just take in everything. Yeah, I just want to sit here and be blessed. Feed me. Give me good worship. Entertain me. Give me all of the things to tantalize me. No, He calls you. He saves you. He forgives you of all of your sins. And then He sends you. He's got a job for you to perform. And He wants you to grow up by being around older Christians. Learning from them. And then, discipling others. Now, I want you to notice something. We have a couple minutes. Easy. No problem to finish this. Aquila and Priscilla had been hanging out with Paul. Paul reproduced his spiritual life within them. He got with them. He trained them. They watched him in the synagogue. They watched him out in the marketplace. They watched him in the midst of persecution. Now he travels with them to Ephesus and notice in verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria. So he's from Egypt. He was an eloquent man, a golden-tongued orator. Mighty in the Scriptures came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They saw a need to get with him and do to him what Paul had done to them. Explain the way more fully. Get them some spiritual background. 
and to train him. And then Apollos went and reproduced the life that was in him. Notice verse 27. When he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so that beautiful ministry of discipleship, now that's a ministry everybody here who's a believer can get involved in. That personal relationship with other people. Growing and learning from older Christians. Being taught, being fed, watching, learning, and then reproducing your life in others, and then they'll reproduce in others. So there was apostleship, and that apostleship brought hardship. And you are an apostle if you're a believer. Maybe not in the technical New Testament term or sense, But the word apostle means one who is sent out. You're sent out. You've got a commission. And when you exercise your apostleship, you'll have hardship. But as you have hardship, because you're following his apostleship, you'll have his fellowship. He'll be with you. You'll have his promises, his assurance that you're in the will of God. And you know what it feels like when in the will of God you suffer. It doesn't matter because you're in his will. And then discipleship. Being with other believers. Now, some of you need to take the first step tonight. Some of you are Christians who come here, and because it's a larger kind of a fellowship, it's easy to become a spectator. You can come in and watch and observe and take notes, and boom, split. And you never really get to know people. You never get locked into a kinship, a small Bible study, even friendships with other people. And perhaps the first step you need to take is companionship. The Bible says, He who has friends must himself be friendly. I've met a lot of people who say, I don't know anybody here. Why not? Nobody has come up to me. Why don't you go up to them? Meet them. Invite them out for lunch. Pray with them. And there are enough groups around here that are smaller than just the big meals to encourage you to do that. For others of you, the first step you need to take is fellowship with God and companionship with God. You know, Jesus called his disciples, and the first thing he said is, follow me. It was a call to salvation. The second time he came to them and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But he didn't tell them that first. First is just follow me. And the first step for many of you tonight, perhaps, is that you just come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you have his fellowship and companionship. And he changes your life. And as you're washed of your sins, then he gives you a commission. And as Jesse said, It is a blast. It is a life that never runs dry. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Not, I have come that you might have bummer. I have come that you might be an insipid person. Tasteless and lifeless. And sometimes Christianity is portrayed that way. You know, when I was an unbeliever, I used to look at Christians and think, why would I want to be one of them? There's nothing in many of them that even attracts me. I mean, just head hanging down. I thought, forget it. But then I met some Christians that were filled with life. Filled with joy in God's presence. And God will give you abundant life. Life to the full. Life turned up to ten. And as you exercise your apostleship, you'll have hardship. But you'll endure it for the right reasons. And you'll have His fellowship. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He'll be with you to the end of the age.
And in that, you'll be training others. It's a great life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we want to thank you, first of all, for this opportunity. The opportunity to meet like this and to have fellowship one with another over your word, centering around the scriptures. We pray, Father, that these truths would sink into our hearts and that we might have the same experiences of Paul in Corinth. That after coming to you, we would have a commission and apostleship. And though we experience hardship, we would know your presence, your protection, your promises. Lord, thanks. Thanks for your work in our lives. And thank you how you fill us and give us your life. We pray, Father, for those who are on the fringe, believers, yes, but experiencing companionship and discipleship, no. I pray, Father, that there would be an involvement in their lives. And Father, also, for those who don't know Jesus, they don't know the experience of the fullness that we enjoy. I pray that they would come to know you, and I pray that we might portray Christ to them not in a, in a plastic kind of a way, but in a real way that would attract them to you. Lord, thank you that you forgive us for our shortcomings, for our sins. And Father, we pray that there might be that experience of forgiveness for the first time for many tonight in Jesus' name.